Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Persino Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Megan Seksinski, Client Services Director, and I'm joined today by Michelle Persino Wells, one of four attorneys with our firm. We are excited to discuss myths about the Medicaid long-term care program that we use so often to help families in our community. So, Michelle, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. You know, I love this topic. I feel like we are talking about the Medicaid long-term care program in the community so often, and we are faced sometimes by objections and Mm -hmm. families just saying, surely that benefit isn't for me. And I think these myths about Medicaid come from a few different places. There's a discrepancy in understanding how the program works. Yes. There's a discrepancy in understanding how to qualify for the benefit. Yes. Who could use it. And then I think another thing that comes into play is families have memories. And sometimes those memories are 30 years old of a loved one using a skilled nursing facility, for example, and that has stuck with them. And that's just what stands out to them about anyone that they love needing or using long-term care. And it kind of relates, it begins relating to the Medicaid program. So I love this topic because there is so much, there's such a long list to dispel. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, throughout my practice, you know, with the various areas that we practice, you know, the the misinformation Mm -hmm. and the myths that are out there related to the asset protection planning and the Medicaid program, um, even unfortunately from other professionals, yeah. could be other attorneys, financial advisors, CPAs, mm-hmm. people that just don't understand the rules and know the program. Mm-hmm. So, so me too. Mm-hmm. I am really excited that we're we're you know creating this episode yeah. and and really hoping that we can educate our community some. Yes. So I have a list, and we'll do just that. If you're up for it, sure. we'll go right through. This first one, you know, I don't let an education event go by (laughs) without making sure that the presenting attorney gets an opportunity to put a plug in and dispel this myth. So the first myth, if I'm married, I can do everything for my spouse. Yes, and you're, you do a great job of reminding <laughs> us to talk about this because it is so important because it's such a common, a, a common mistake that people make. So, yeah, people think because you're married, you know, that you can act for one another. Um, and I, I always like to joke about it, like think that really through. Like in a lot of marriages, like that's mm-hmm. not going to work. Mm-hmm. Like if you just automatically have legal authority to act for your spouse. And, you know, an example of that when you can see that is... You know, try to make a withdrawal out of your spouse's retirement account. Right. Yeah, that financial institution is going to shut you down. Mm-hmm. Or try to sell your real estate and sign the deed for mm-hmm. your spouse without your spouse's involvement. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Not at all. So really important that married couples understand that. I think they're often used to, you know, having joint bank accounts. And they either one can transact, you know, write checks on that account exactly. or make withdrawals. And that's because of the nature of it being a joint account and the mm-hmm. account agreement that they signed. But other assets, you know, that it doesn't work that way. So you know, we talk about at all of our educational events, we talk about the importance of a power of attorney document. 
um, where you can actually appoint an agent that can help you manage your affairs. Really important. I mean, I wish every person I knew over the age of 18 had one in place um, because they are so important. None of us ever know what could happen where we might not be able to manage our own affairs. You know, we saw that through the COVID pandemic mm-hmm. where people were very ill for an extended period of time um, and, and needed somebody to be able to act for them during that. So, a pretty straightforward power mm-hmm. of attorney document is what every person needs, including married couples, to be able to act for one another if that's mm-hmm. needed. Yeah, really easy solution yes. to that one. Yes. Okay, next one. I will lose my home. If I need long-term care, if I might use the Medicaid long-term care benefit, I will lose my home. How is that a myth? So it's a myth, particularly in the married couple context. Um, so the Medicaid rules, you know, so we're talking about Medicaid long-term care benefits. So say, you know, one spouse needs to go to a nursing home because they just can't receive, you know, safe care at home anymore. Um, there's always this fear that they're going to lose their home. We see people put off receiving care or looking into care because, you know, their uncle's cousin's next door's neighbor's wife said, And, you know, such a fear out there. Um, So for a married couple, as long as one spouse is living in the home, the home's going to be completely protected. Mm -hmm. Um, For a single person, um, if they're able to stay at home and you can receive long-term care benefits at home in Delaware, um, not as easily in in Maryland, unfortunately, but in Delaware, if you're still at home, you can receive Medicaid eligibility and you get to keep your home because... Um, you're living there. With pre-planning, a person can actually shelter their home. So there's certain trusts that can be created where people can can shelter their home. So if down the road they need long-term care, the home can be completely protected. Um, So there is some risk for a single person who hasn't done any asset protection planning and they need Medicaid benefits. The home is then going to be considered accountable resource. But even then, there's some planning that can be done to perhaps, you know, sell the home at a discount to a family member or even if the home is sold to shelter a good part of the proceeds. So there's a lot of planning. So it's a myth in a lot of cases where the home can be completely protected. Mm -hmm. But worst case scenario, even at the last minute with no planning, at least, you know, a good portion of the value of the home can still be protected. And I love what you mentioned that so often folks will delay getting the care that they need. So that is one of the top reasons, I think, for us to dispel these myths. There's a long list of them too, (laughs) but one of the top reasons. Okay, next one. I cannot afford long-term care. And again, that's the biggest reason people put off receiving care, either for themselves or for their loved ones. We see this a lot with married couples where they feel like the only option is to send their spouse, you know, so you have an ill spouse, you know, perhaps the spouse has dementia um, and you've got the caregiver spouse who is absolutely exhausted. It's a 24 hour a day job um, and they, they, they put off receiving care. They don't look into it because they've heard all these myths and they've heard that nursing homes cost, you know, $13,000 a month. And they say, well, we can't afford that. You know, Mm -hmm. so I have to keep my spouse at home. I have to do this myself. Maybe the kids will help me. Um, And they don't understand that with planning, they can shelter. A married couple in particular can usually shelter 
the bulk of their mm -hmm. assets. Mm -hmm. um, they can receive care at home. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they can have caregivers that will come into their home and that helps keep the loved one at home longer. Um, and so when, when you go through the planning process and Medicaid eligibility is achieved, you learn that you can get the care that's required. If there is a, a caregiver spouse or caregiver child or whoever that family member is, now they get to go back to being a spouse Great. or a child. Very they get important. now they just get to be the advocate. They need to, you know, be be able to still look out for mm -hmm. mom or dad or husband or wife or whoever it may be. But you know, with when you can add government benefits as a payer source, it makes care affordable, mm -hmm. and you can still shelter assets. You don't have to become destitute in order to receive mm -hmm. long-term care benefits. Um, there's planning opportunities that are permitted by state and federal law, mm -hmm. uh, but planning right. opportunities to help you know people afford care when mm -hmm. they otherwise think they might not be able to. That's when the clients take a big, deep Yes. Those are the ones where we break, you know, we explain all that. And that's the ones that they give us hugs at that's the end right. of the meeting and say exactly. thank you. And they send us, you know, the, later when they have their loved one receiving benefits and receiving the care that they need, they send us the most wonderful notes saying mm -hmm. thank you so much. My, you know, mom is now receiving the care that she needs. She's mm -hmm. safe. She's the healthiest that we've seen her in, in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And thank you because we were able to shelter some of her assets. That's right. Next up, I should use my retirement savings to pay for my ill spouse's care. So this is a really important one, and this is very state-specific. This is um, a particular myth in Delaware. So um, we're talking retirement savings. We're talking about IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, any of those kinds of tax-qualified retirement accounts. And so the way the rules work in Delaware, if, you know, say I need care, if I need care um, and my husband, you know, has his retirement account, um, if I apply for Medicaid benefits, his retirement account is actually considered an exempt asset or vice versa. So if it's my retirement account, so if it's my IRA and I'm applying for care, my own retirement account is going to be considered a countable asset and available to help pay for my long-term care. Mm -hmm. But my spouse's isn't. And so this is a really huge planning opportunity. Um, and unfortunately, we have seen people who aren't aware of this rule. Mm -hmm. And so again, like if I needed care, you know, perhaps my husband is dipping into his retirement account um, because that's, you know, for lots of our, our clients, that's their biggest source of savings. And so he starts dipping into his retirement account to pay for my care. And once that money's gone, you can't get it back. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really important for people to understand that the retirement accounts of the spouse who's not receiving care, so the non-applicant spouse, those retirement accounts are completely protected in Delaware. Unfortunately, Maryland, you know, we practice in both states. Unfortunately, in Maryland, they do not have the same rule. So what's interesting about that, you know, we've had some Maryland residents actually right. place their loved one in a Delaware facility. So you can live in Salisbury and you could place your loved one in a facility in Seaford. Um, and then the, the, the state Medicaid rules apply for the state in which you're living. So 
if I needed care, you know, if we lived in Maryland and I needed care, my husband could place me mm-hmm. um, in a in a facility in Delaware, and then Delaware's rules are going to apply, mm-hmm. and his retirement account is going to be safe. Mm-hmm. Whereas if he were to place me in a Maryland facility, his account is countable. So it's a really important rule to understand mm-hmm. and be aware of, especially for, like I said, a lot of our clients mm-hmm. now, you know, they own their homes, and then their retirement accounts mm-hmm. are their largest assets. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of times when we talk about that topic, we're asked about residency requirements state to state. So maybe you could just quickly include that too. That Right. There aren't any. Right. <laughs> so if I've been a Maryland resident my entire life, mm-hmm. but I move into a Delaware long-term care facility, I can apply for Medicaid immediately. Mm-hmm. So there are no, yeah. you don't have to have been a resident of the state for six months. It really just depends on where you're receiving care. Now, my understanding is that that's not the case in all states, but it is in Delaware and Maryland. Really good to know. Mm-hmm. The next one, if I have gifted, then surely I cannot become eligible for Medicaid. <laughs> so again, a myth. I mean, it's partly true, partly not. Um, gifting can be done as part of a Medicaid eligibility plan. Mm-hmm. So when a person applies for Medicaid benefits, the application asks the question, have you made any gifts within five years of applying for Medicaid? And gifts include, you know, if I sell my house to my son for a dollar, mm-hmm. that's still a gift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people often ask that question. Yeah. Or people say, well, can I just, you know, if I put my son's name, on, you know, if I take my name off the deed and put my son's name on the house, okay, that's still a gift. So any kind of transfer for less than what the asset is worth um, is generally also going to be considered a gift. So you've got that five-year window in which you have to disclose any gifts. So if, you know, I've created an asset protection trust, we're going to have an episode completely about that. Um, But if I've created an asset protection trust and I transfer my house to it and there's a five-year look-back period, but if I apply for Medicaid benefits eight years later, you know, the application says, have you made any transfers of assets within the last five years? I can answer that question, no. And I could tell the case manager, you know, I I made a transfer eight years ago, but they're going to say, okay, well, we're only worried about what happened in the last five years. So then... Let's say I'm applying for Medicaid and, you know, as part of a planning process, I transferred some assets into a trust, you know, last week. Um, So obviously I have to disclose that gift. So the five-year look-back period is a disclosure rule. You have to disclose. And then Medicaid does an analysis of what's going to be the consequence of that gift. It doesn't mean you're automatically going to be ineligible for benefits for five years. That's not what the five years relates Mm -hmm. to. The five years is just the time period within which you have to disclose gifts. Mm -hmm. But let's say I gave away $10,000 yesterday and I'm applying for Medicaid today. Medicaid is going to do a calculation And right now, under current law, that would mean that they'd say, okay, Michelle, well, if you can show us that you're otherwise eligible for Medicaid, so that means I'm down below $2,000, if I need, you know, other planning, I've got everything else lined up, but they're going to say, okay, well, you made a $10,000 gift, so we're going to delay paying for your care for one month as a penalty for that gift that you made. Okay, so they're saying, you know, we would start paying for your care now because you meet all the other eligibility rules, but because of that gift, we're going to delay. The penalty works out to be roughly about $10,000 or one month per every Mm $10,000 that's been gifted. 
So let's pretend, let's make it a little easier. I gave away $50,000 as part of a planning process. So Medicaid says, okay, Michelle, you're eligible, but we're going to delay. We're going to penalize you and we're going to delay paying for your benefits for five months because you made a $50,000 gift. I have to have a plan then for how I'm going to pay for care for those five months. And we typically use, we call it a gift and annuity strategy. You know, it's too big to talk about in in depth in this episode. We'll talk about it in others. Um, But with this annuity strategy, basically what I've done is I've set aside some money that is going to allow me to continue to privately pay for care during that five-month penalty Mm -hmm. period. And at the end of the five-month penalty period, Medicaid's going to start paying for my care. And the gifted funds that I set aside, that gift that they penalized me for, that's going to be sheltered. Mm -hmm. That's going to be set aside and protected. So gifting is possible as long as it's part of a plan. Because you have to have a plan for how you're going to pay for care during that penalty period. And you can't have the money sitting in the bank Mm -hmm. because then you're not ever going to become otherwise eligible for Medicaid. You have to satisfy all of Medicaid's other rules before they will let that penalty period start to run. So a very long answer. <laughs> but so the so in a nutshell, yeah, because it's a complicated, these are mm-hmm. complicated um, you know, complicated things. Um, but in a nutshell, gifting there's a there's a consequence to gifting depending on when the gift was done. Mm-hmm. If it's more than five years prior to application, you're good. Mm-hmm. But if it's within the five years, eligibility can still be achieved, but there's got to be a plan in place. You know, you have to anticipate the penalty that's going to be imposed and then have a plan for how you're going to pay for care during that penalty period. Mm -hmm. Which leads us nicely into (laughs) the next myth, which is it's too late or too early to plan. Right. So the it's too late to plan. Um, what we just talked about, you know, that that's what we call crisis planning, where if you're making a gift and then immediately thereafter applying for Medicaid benefits. So um, we've had families come to us where they've actually already been paying for their loved one's mm-hmm. care. Um, for a long time. I mean, sometimes in cases, years they've been paying and they've spent a lot of money before they learned that planning opportunities were available. It's why we, why we love talking about this because we want people to know that there's planning that can be done and people don't have to privately pay for care for 10 years out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's never too late to plan mm-hmm. as long as there's some assets left. Right. Um, you know, we've sheltered, you know, we've, we've had families come to us and we've helped them shelter $10,000. That's right. We've had families come to us who we've helped shelter hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. So it, it's never too late as long as there's some assets left to shelter. Mm-hmm. And let me just add to that. Some families come to us, you know, even when there's not enough left to shelter, but if there's a, a little bit left, they like to hire us to just help them through the application process because that in and of itself is a gift to the family. Um, if they, they can hand that process off to somebody else and they don't have to go through that stress themselves. So never too late as long as there's 
um, assets left to be sheltered. And then it's it's never too early either. You know, the asset protection trust that I mentioned, that's that's planning, that's appropriate, um, a pre-planning tool that someone creates really as part of just their standard estate planning, where you that that needs to be done you know, hopefully at least five years mm-hmm. prior to needing care. Um, but it could be done 20 years prior to needing care. That really can be done at any time. And so we create a lot of asset protection trusts for our clients um, who are interested in doing what they can in advance to be able to shelter assets. Mm-hmm. And with that kind of planning, what is incredible about it when you place assets in that type of trust and they're in that trust for more than five years, they are 100% protected, mm-hmm. you know, if and when you need long-term care benefits. Mm-hmm. And so that is a tremendous planning opportunity. It's huge. You did such a great job of explaining how it's <laughs> never too late to plan, but I love it when you tell the story of your client who used skilled nursing facility care for 11 years yeah. before we yes. met their family. Do you feel yes. like telling that story? Sure. Yeah, it was because it's it really is the the it's a terrible example, um, but it, it worked out. So yeah, we had a family come to us. A gentleman had been in a local facility for 11 years and um, the the knee, he didn't have any children. It was his niece who was sort of his, his you know, the, the one who looked out for things for him. And uh, she called us, her neighbor, a friend of hers who was her neighbor had been to one of our workshops mm-hmm. and was just interested in learning, you know, and she went home that night and she called her friend and and said, you know, is your uncle, is he still in that nursing home? Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah. And, and um, she said, well, you know, I don't know if this law firm is legit or not, but if they are, <laughs> you need to call them and you need to check this out because they're saying that some of his money could be protected. And so we did. We jumped in and he didn't have a huge amount left. He had spent a huge amount uh, of money in those 11 years privately paying for skilled nursing care. Um, but we were able to, to jump in and we were able to help help shelter. We were able to shelter in that case about 60% of the assets that he still had left. We had to do some gifting and use of an annuity and some other strategic spend down. But we were able to help. And what was really sad about it when, you know, we were explaining, you know, the planning that we could do, it didn't take long for the niece to, you know, do the math and to figure out, you know, if they had known sooner um, how much money they could have sheltered. But, you know, there wasn't, unfortunately, anything we could do about what had already been spent, but we were able to shelter, like I say, about 60% of what was left. And that was a real blessing for that family. Mm-hmm. Great story to kind of illustrate. Yeah. Next one, a person must be destitute to qualify for Medicaid. So hopefully this is becoming evident, <laughs> talking about the other myths, is that with planning, you don't have to be destitute. That's the whole point of the planning. Um, you know, federal and state law, I could say it, you know, 5,000 times, federal and state law um, permit certain planning to be done. You know, so it's really like it's it's just smart financial planning um, that that a person can shelter assets it all gets disclosed to Medicaid. It's not like, you know, sometimes the family will say, okay, well, how do we hide dad's money? And it's like, well, we're not, we're not going to hide anything. Um, you know, we're going to disclose it. We're going to use legal ways to do this planning. Um, but, you know, with proper planning, a person can set aside assets. Um, we like to think of that, those assets, the sheltered assets first as a nest egg. 
you know, for the, the client, you know, to make sure that they still have funds available to them. That's the thing. You know, if a person does no planning, then to go on Medicaid, they do have to become destitute. And then if there's something that they need that Medicaid or their health insurance doesn't cover, they're going to have to do without. And that's, that's what's terrible. So when we're sheltering assets, you know, the primary goal is always to set aside a nest egg for that person to re- to make sure that they're still going to receive the best quality care. Mm-hmm. Very good. The next one, we hear a lot of families, they'll, they'll let us get through the dispelling of these myths, coaching them through a lot of great, great things. And then, then they pause and they say, well, but if my if my loved one uses Medicaid for care, then they won't receive the best care. Yes. They'll receive subpar care, maybe in a less than desirable facility. And so let's talk about that one because that's a huge one to coach the community about. It, it really is. Um, I'll never forget, I did a speaking engagement, it's been several years ago, and it was actually to a group of women professionals. And one of the women in the group, she was a financial advisor. She, she you know, and it was kind towards the end of the presentation as she asked the question and she was very um, kind of blunt about it. And she's like, so you're telling me that you want me after I've worked hard my whole life and I have saved and I've invested that you want me to go to some Medicaid facility and what am I going to have to go like 600 miles away from home to some state run mm-hmm. place that like I wouldn't want to send my dog to? And I was floored. I mean, this, and this was a professional. And so it really, and we've gotten not quite that boldly, but we've had that question asked so many times. And, and here's the thing, the planning that we recommend at our firm, you know, something that we, is kind of a common theme among our whole team is that we plan for our clients like we would for our own families. Um, and so the thing to understand about Medicaid eligibility, you know, if you think about it, you go visit someone at the hospital and if they're in a semi-private room, so there's two people in the room, you could have one person in one bed who is on the best, you know, Blue Cross plan on the planet. They've got the best health insurance or they're, they're you know, a gazillionaire and they're privately paying right. for their care. And you could have the person in the neighboring bed who's a Medicaid recipient. You are never, ever going to see a difference in how they're treated and how they're cared for. And the people on that floor, the people working there, don't know and don't care what the payer source is for that patient. So when you talk about that in the hospital context, people are like, right, yeah, no, I mean, I visited, you never know how people are paying. It is the exact same thing Mm -hmm. in a long-term care facility. It's the exact same thing when people are receiving care at home. In fact, some of the more established home care agencies are the ones who are Medicaid eligible. That's right. Some of the smaller ones that aren't as established, they don't have they they don't offer Medicaid-based services because their their business model isn't quite that sophisticated. And so all this planning that we talk about, I would do for my parents. Actually, I have done for my parents. I'll share that. (laughs) Mom and dad, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But yeah, this is planning that I I have done for my parents. And I would not hesitate to, if my parents eventually need long-term care, to use Medicaid Mm -hmm. services for them. Because I you know, I, I have the benefit of seeing this firsthand and knowing that they're going to receive the exact same care that they would if they were privately paying and using their life savings. So um, huge myth. So Megan, thank you so much for asking about that. Mm -hmm. 
Next myth, asset protection planning to qualify for Medicaid is unethical. <laughs> yeah, and I've actually mm. touched on that a few times, haven't I, by saying, you know, I say it repeatedly, you know, that all the planning that we do is permitted by federal and state law. And so the Medicaid program, it is sort of a hybrid. It's it's authorized at the federal level. There are federal statutes. And then, you know, at the state level, we have statutes and then a lot of regulations for how the program is actually carried out. And so everything that we do, anything that we suggest to our clients as a planning strategy, we can point to either a statute or a regulation that permits it. So we actually tend to be very conservative in our planning. You know, I always want to make sure that anything that I'm suggesting to a client, that I can look straight in the eye of a Medicaid case manager and explain to them why it's permitted and show them the statute or the regulation that permits it. So so the, the ethics of it, you know, there are people saying, uh, you know, people will argue, oh, well, this is why we all pay so much in taxes, because people are sheltering assets. Um, other people will argue the absolute opposite and say, this is just smart financial planning. Like, you'd be foolish to spend money on long-term care that you don't legally have to. And it's interesting. You compare it to paying taxes. Right. Like, no one's ever going to pay more in taxes than what they have to. And if, you know, they have a mortgage, they're going to deduct their mortgage interest on their tax return. Mm -hmm. They're going to take advantage of any planning opportunities. And, and if a person says, oh, no, 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 I, I'm going to, no, I'm going to forego that. I'll just pay more in taxes. No one would ever do that. Right. And so really, you know, many of us feel that this is just smart financial planning, just like tax planning is. Um, so, yeah, you, you can have people who will debate that issue. Um, I have seen people uh, choose to debate that issue. And years later, I've seen mm -hmm. that same same person have a family member who needs care, and they're the first ones calling mm -hmm. us saying, oh my goodness, how do we shelter some assets? Totally changes your so perspective. So it, it absolutely changes your perspective mm -hmm. when it's you potentially having to write that check mm -hmm. every month. Yep. Yes. That's a good one. All right, Michelle, we'll wrap up with this last myth. It's a good one as well. All elder law attorneys are the same. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, our firm, you know, I, I feel so blessed to come to work every day because we have an amazing team um, of people who, you know, every day we focus on elder law and estate planning. Um, you know, we're helping families, you know, navigate all these complicated rules, helping make sure that they're going to get the care that they need, that their wishes are going to be carried out. Um, and unfortunately, you know, elder law has, you know, become sort of a, a popular area of law for attorneys to dabble in. Um, you know, you can click on lots of attorney websites and they're going to throw that elder law term around. And it's going to be listed on their website along with, but they'll do your real estate settlement and they'll handle your divorce. They'll do your bankruptcy. They'll handle your kids, you know, DUI. <laughs> they'll, they'll, you know, do all kinds of different areas of law. Um, and so oftentimes, unfortunately, those attorneys might know a little bit, um, but they're often not going to be experts because these are extremely complicated areas of law. Um, so it's really important to make sure that you've got the right attorney um, for that. On our website, we actually have a document. We call it the top 10 questions to, to sort of ask an elder law attorney when you're interviewing them. And here's the thing. If they can't rattle off the answers to those questions very easily and very thoroughly, 
that's going to give you a clue that they're not the best attorney for the job. So you got to be mm -hmm. really, really careful. Um, we have lots of families who come to us after they've met with other attorneys, and sometimes they're 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 just given absolutely wrong advice mm -hmm. or they're given very minimal advice. Um, we've had families, you know, that other attorneys have told them, oh, sorry, there's nothing you can do. You just have to privately pay. It's too late. Mm -hmm. And very. unfortunately, lots of attorneys are very proud, you know, <laughs> very proud and won't admit when something is out of their area of expertise. So you just mm -hmm. have to be really careful. Really careful that you're comparing apples to apples. Yes. I think it's like talking people into doing the homework, yes. which, you know, in these stressful circumstances, it makes sense that they're feeling overwhelmed right? and kind of skip that step. But if we could encourage, you know, that comparison, the homework, do your research. Yes. It's key. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us today and doing this episode. I love this topic. Me too. And it's my pleasure. And I could talk about this. I, I wish I could shout it from the rooftops because, like I said earlier, we really we see so many people come in with just bad information. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully we've fixed a little bit. I of hope that so. Today. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, Listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.